Ohio fashion, we've decided to skip spring and go straight to summer. It's 80-some degrees out there today. Apparently, the state doesn't believe in transition seasons. Welcome to an hour of your life. My name is Kim, and I'm super sunburned. And my name is Steve, and I'm not. Because you were responsible and stayed in the house today while I spent the day in the woods with four children. I had to work. I went in. So um, if you're from the Dayton area, you might know about a place called Allwood uh, Metro Park, Allwood Audubon and Farm and Gardens. There is a and I'm so sorry, I can't remember his name, but there is an artist like an international artist who makes these trolls. They're huge and they're made out of all recycled material. It's all organic, like it's all stuff that can be reused or recycled and we have three of these really um, like big deal trolls and uh, and they only stay up for a limited time and then they take them down because since I, I think the reason is that since they are made of recyclable material, like they deteriorate faster in, in the elements. And so they don't want, you know, like a two ton troll falling on somebody. So I took some of the girls out to see them and who. It was hotter than I thought it was going to be. You sound like you're still out of breath. It's, uh, and they, they want to move to Florida and yet they were melting in the Ohio heat. So we'll see. We'll see about that. We'll see what happens. Anyway, so in today's episode, we're going to talk about the San Francisco earthquake of 1906. And yes, we are going to talk about the quake itself and provide facts about the event, but we're also going to go sort of behind the scenes a little bit and talk about some personal recollections and stories to kind of provide a little more insight to the story of the earthquake. Now, San Francisco is a very beautiful city. The fog, the hills, the cable cars just make it a very unique place. The Ghirardelli chocolate. Yeah. (laughs) It's, It's long been a historic city in our nation's history. I mean, you've got Alcatraz, down by the piers, the many eclectic restaurants. Wait, wait, can I interrupt you one thing about the the eclectic restaurants? Something that I learned about San Francisco when I was doing some research on Super Bowl foods, um, sourdough is so popular in San Francisco and so kind of prominent there because it is the literal perfect environment for the, the um, like the, the, uh, not mold, but like the fungus or whatever it is that the yeast spores that make sourdough have its taste that it's comes from nowhere else, but in San Francisco, which is why it tastes so good. In fact, the oldest bakery in San Francisco has a 200 year old starter that they make their, their sourdough from. Well, when we went out there, we were on East coast time. So we were able to get in the city early mm-hmm. before the traffic. And we went to that restaurant it was so just good. to sit and eat. And I watch think that's happening. the one Boudin bakery. I think that's yeah. the one that has the 200 year old sourdough yeah. starter. Yeah. Well, with all those restaurants and all the different cultures that make up the city. And then you have the military significance of San Francisco. How many sailors, Marines and soldiers sailed off to war And the last thing they saw was the Golden Gate Bridge as they sailed away under it. The financial importance of the city, it's just served as a a financial hub back in the day with with all the trade and everything that was going on, the gold rush, the banks. 
So it was it was a financial hub then, and it is now. Then you have all the different social movements that the city has served, like you have like the Hate Ashbury neighborhood, and all the other social movements that San Francisco has seen during sure. its history. It's just a very Berkeley, historic... Isn't Berkeley in that area? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And I'll, I'll say it again. It's just a very, very beautiful city. If you have never had dinner near the water and you've watched the fog roll in, it's just an experience that you, you're, you're not going to soon forget. I mean, Take a walk around the Presidio in Fort Point National Historic Site at night in the fog and listen to the foghorn blare. There's, I don't know if there's any place else in the world quite like that. I it's mean, like Mark Twain said, the coldest winter I ever spent was a summer in San Francisco. Yeah, I mean, to me, it's just a part of Americana, San Francisco, New York City, the Grand Canyon, Yellowstone National Park, and all the other great places to see and visit. To see the city now, you probably won't even think of the earthquake in 1906 and how it destroyed the city. Yeah, the San Francisco earthquake of 1906 was a major earthquake with a magnitude of 7.9. That's big. That occurred on April 18th, 1906 at 5.12 a.m. off the northern coast of California. Now, first of all, I think that is one of the scariest things about natural disasters, whether they be hurricanes, earthquakes, tornadoes, when they occur in the late night or early morning hours because you don't know what's coming, like you're asleep yeah, people were so literally shaken out of bed. Very scary. Now, I mentioned that it was a magnitude of 7.9. The Richter scale was not invented until 1935, but today scientists estimate that based on all of the evidence, and there is film evidence, um, all kinds of different evidence, that the severity of the San Francisco earthquake had to be about a 7.9. Yeah. Now, everyone at some point has heard about the San Andreas Fault, you know, the fault that if the big one hits California, it's going to break off and California is going to fall into the sea. Well, that's not going to happen. Um, California actually firmly sits on the Earth's crust where it spans two tectonic plates. And the San Andreas Fault is some 745 miles long, and it actually creates two tectonic plates that form the boundaries of the North American plate and the Pacific plate. And it pretty much runs up California and splits it and um, so if you Google it, you can actually see pictures of the San Andreas where Fault on the ground. Yeah. Up. yeah. So our advice for the day is don't speculate on buying beachfront property in Nevada. Yeah, California not gonna, is not going to fall not off into the ocean. Yeah. Yeah. So with that sound advice, <laughs> let's get back to the San Andreas Fault and it's rolling the San Francisco earthquake. So the San Andreas Fault slipped along a segment about 270 miles long, extending from San Juan Batista in San Benito County to Humboldt County, and from there, probably out under the sea to an unknown distance. The shaking was felt from Los Angeles in the south to Coos Bay, Oregon in the north. Damage was severe in San Francisco, and we're going to get into just how severe and other towns that were situated near the fault, including San Jose, Salinas, and Santa Rosa. Um, you know, San Jose and Salinas are pretty good size. San Jose especially are pretty good sized cities now. They were not, I don't think, as big at the time. Certainly not as, as big and well-known as San Francisco. Yeah. So San Francisco had experienced earthquakes before because it is in California in 1864 1898 and 1900, but nothing like the 1906 earthquake. Now, obviously, it has experienced many more, but sure. these are big quakes. Yeah, okay. At 5.12 a.m. on April 18th, a noise like the roar of 10,000 lions 
rose as the entire city began to tremble and shake. Cable cars abruptly stopped, City Hall crumbled, and the Palace Hotel's glass roof splintered and littered the courtyard of the the hotel below. Could you imagine if you were standing in that courtyard? I mean, it's 512 in the morning, so you're probably not standing there, but... If you were the desk clerk and it just starts raining glass, yeah, that's got to be so scary. Yeah, and aside from the greatest destruction of San Francisco, not put aside the destruction from the earthquake itself, the greatest destruction came from the fires that started from the broken gas lines, and that really has a lot to do with her story today. Yeah, the fire swept from the business section near Montgomery Street and the South Market District toward Russian Hill, Chinatown, North Beach, and Telegraph Hill. The blaze continued for four days until its ashes, its smoldering ashes, were finally put out by a rain that came. In the process of the fire, more than 500 blocks of the city were destroyed, burned, razed. Some four square miles were leveled. The inferno destroyed some 28,000 buildings, and the total property value was estimated at $350 million. And that's in 1908 dollars. That's in 1908 dollars. Gotcha. Yeah. That's about $11 billion in today's money. Holy cow. Now, the earthquake did generate a tsunami, but it was a very, very small tsunami and so it was only about 10 centimeters or about four inches. Wait, 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 what? I, I thought... A, a tsunami doesn't have to be a huge wave. I it's thought just, that's what a tsunami was. Like, what is a tsunami then? I thought a tsunami was a huge, giant wave. Well, it's it's a wave that's created by an earthquake. It doesn't have... Oh. Yeah. I so, never knew that. I yeah. always thought the tsunami was just the name for a giant wave. Well, because you usually hear... Like, you hear about their yeah. earthquakes and they you know they'll get... Huh. Like a, a small one, but, you know, we only really hear about the big, big ones. ones. Yeah. yeah, interesting. Well, there you go. You learn something new every day. At the time, it was thought that some 700 people died in the disaster, but the death toll now is believed to have exceeded 3,000. Survivors camped in Golden Gate Park and in the dunes west of the city, or they fled to outlying towns. Within a short time, Relief shipments of food and clothing reached the city, and several tens of millions of dollars in financial aid arrived from foreign sources, including money from Europe, Japan, and China, and other parts of the Americas. Although insurance payments were made in the neighborhood of $300 million that eventually came in, the long task of reconstruction was really sustained and done by the courage and the persistence of the people of San Francisco. And you'll, I, I can't help but, you know, as we were kind of um, researching this and looking over the notes and everything, it reminds me a lot of the Chicago fire. And, and you'll see some, some similarities, not only were people kind of pressed to the outskirts of the city and, um, you know, basically really kind of pushed to... Well, they just had to escape the fire. Yeah, um, to, you know, water's edge or the, the dunes in this case. Um, but also that they, it, it just was just the devastation because of a lack of water. And we'll get to that in just a minute. Yeah. And, you know, I think today we look at this earthquake that happened in 1906 and we think, you know what, that's ancient history. But it's not. It, 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 it is old history, but we kind of tend to, 
it's softened, it's lessened. 3,000 yeah. people, that's approximately how many people died in 9-11, too. Yeah, it's a lot. And yeah. in a city that's much smaller, you know, San Francisco was much smaller then than it is now. Yeah. It's only just continued growth. So um, a lot of the city was rebuilt to be earthquake and fire resistant. Of course, you can never make a city fire or earthquake proof. But um, new plans for civic development made headway as the debris of the old city vanished. In 1915, San Francisco invited the world to see the results of its efforts at the Panama Pacific International Exposition. Now, I don't think that we can underestimate the magnitude of effort it took to rebuild that quickly. Yeah. For reference, we had a, a tornado that ripped through here two years ago, and there are still homes without roofs. Yeah. From that tornado two years ago. They completely rebuilt the city in just a, a what, a little less than 10 years? Yeah. That's insane. That, I mean, it had to be people working around the clock. Uh, you can Google and look at the pictures. But like I said earlier, there's even movies of the destruction. Geologic field studies of this earthquake led to the detailed formation of the theory that elastic rebound of strained faults causes the shaking associated with earthquakes. Now, I have been in two earthquakes, and both were very different types of earthquake. One was a shaking-type earthquake. So maybe think if... If you've never experienced an earthquake, think of a board game and just grabbing it by the edges and shaking the board back and forth. Mm -hmm. The other type of earthquake I personally was in was a rolling type of earthquake. You could hear it coming from out in the distance. And the best way I can describe it, it was like being a boat on a wave or think of maybe a ripple in a pond or a lake. So from everything that we can gather, the 1906 earthquake in San Francisco was a shaking-style earthquake. Kim, have you ever been in an earthquake? Yeah, I've actually, I've been in two as well, and it's really interesting the way that you describe the rolling earthquake um, was actually here in Ohio. That's right. And yeah. um, so it was I, It was very interesting to me because um, I take a kind of a medication that if I don't have it, that's the sensation that I kind of have in my in my head. It gives me kind of like a unbalanced equilibrium kind of a thing that it feels like I'm standing on a boat. And so when and it happened early in the morning, like, I mean, not early, early, but it was like seven, seven thirty, something like that in the morning. And I, that's early for you. Yeah. It's early for me. And I kind of brushed it off because I thought that maybe, you know, I just hadn't had my medicine yet for the day. And, and I was just having some kind of a reaction. But then later on, I saw that there was an earthquake and I was like, oh, well, I'm not going crazy. It actually you was. Know, I, I forgot about that. I We have had earthquakes yeah, here in Ohio. Small, very small and ones. In I mean, Kentucky. it didn't do any damage. But yeah, I, I completely forgot about those. Yeah, the other one, um, I don't remember very well. I lived in California and San Diego, the San Diego area um, for a year when I was in first grade. Um, and so I do remember one from that time period and it was a lot stronger. I mean, it was enough to, um, shake dishes off the shelves. Yeah. Well, the ones here that we experienced in Ohio, they didn't cause much damage. I, yeah. I think you heard like maybe a few chimneys crumbled or something. Yeah. Like that. And the one in San Diego too. I mean, it wasn't, we lived on the top floor of an apartment complex and it, I mean, like I said, it just shook the it wasn't even enough. They say you should go stand in a doorway because it's the most structurally sound, I think. Um, so, like, we didn't do that or anything. It just knocked some dishes off the off the counter. <laughs> wasn't anything serious. 
But as far as the San Francisco quake, um, that pretty much covers the sterile facts of the earthquake. So with that, let's move on to more of the behind the scenes stories and sort of lesser known history. So there were three eyewitnesses that have described their experiences. Of a sudden, we had found ourselves staggering and reeling. It was as if the earth was slipping gently from under our feet. Then came the sickening swaying of the earth that threw us flat upon our faces. We struggled in the street. We could not get on our feet. Then it seemed as though my head were split with the roar that crashed into my ears. Big buildings were crumbling as one might crush a biscuit in one's hand. Ahead of me, a great cornice crushed a man as if he were a maggot, a laborer in overhauls on his way to the Union Iron Works with a dinner pail on his arm. And that is the account of a P. Barrett. I'm not really sure what the P stands for, but um, it's a it's a really, I think, uh, very eloquent telling of and description of kind of what that was like. Yeah. Now, these next two quotes really bring out the desperation that people found themselves in either trying to... This really alarmed me when I heard this one. Yeah. When the fire caught the Windsor Hotel at 5th and Market Streets, there were three men on the roof, and it was impossible to get them down. Rather than see the crazed men fall in in with the roof and be roasted alive, the military officer directed his men to shoot them, which they did in the presence of 5,000 people. And that comes from a gentleman named Max Fast. Can you imagine being yeah. a police officer? Yeah, or well, the guys. Like, you know, you're going to... Yeah. Lesser of two evil. Another recollection by a, a gentleman named Adolphus Bush. The most terrible thing I saw was the futile struggle of a policeman and others to rescue a man who was pinned down in burning wreckage. The helpless man watched... In silence till the fire began to burn his feet. Then he screamed and begged to be killed. The policeman took his name and address and shot him through the head. Oh, my goodness. Businessman Jerome B. Clark lived in Berkeley across the bay from San Francisco. He experienced a minor shakeup at his home in the early morning, but this didn't stop him from making his regular trip to the city. He describes what he saw as he disembarked from the ferry. In every direction from the ferry building, flames were seething, and as I stood there, a five-story building half a block away fell with a crash, and the flames swept clear across Market Street and caught a new fireproof building recently erected. The streets in places had sunk three or four feet, and others' great humps had appeared four or five feet high. The streetcar tracks were bent and twisted out of shape. Electric wires lay in every direction. Streets on all sides were filled with brick and mortar. Buildings either completely collapsed or brick fronts had just dropped completely off. Wagons with horses hitched to them, drivers and all, lying on the streets, all dead, struck and killed by the falling bricks, those mostly the wagons of the produce dealers who do the greater part of their work at that hour of the morning. Warehouses and large wholesale houses of all descriptions, either down or walls bulging or else twisted, buildings moved bodily two or three feet out of line and still standing with walls all cracked. The call building, a 12-story skyscraper, stood and looked all right at first glance, but it had moved the base two feet at one end out onto the sidewalk and the elevators refused to work, all the interior being just twisted out of shape. It afterward burned as I watched it. Now, I'm going to break there for just a second and and bring back up a point. 
um, about the the horses in the wagons with the horses hitched to them. Uh, I it's one thing that um, always kind of I I always kind of tend to forget in these historical contexts, but it always kind of drives it home when you have um, mention of the horses because in the aftermath of of these old timey you know the disasters there are and i've seen pictures from like the 1913 Dayton flood of just horses piled on top of each other mm-hmm. in the streets that they have to dispose of but it takes time like you have to dispose of the you know you have to help with the humans first so that is part of it too is in the rebuilding process you have decay like a- animal and human decay that you have to deal with as well um, so it's it's not it's chaos. Um, fires were blazing in all directions, and all of the finest and best of the office and business buildings were either burning or surrounded. They pumped water from the bay, but the fire was soon too far away from the waterfront to make effort in this direction of much avail. The water mains had been broken by the earthquake, and there was no supply for the fire engines, so they were helpless. The only way out was to dynamite, and I saw some of the finest and most beautiful buildings in the city, new modern palaces, blown to atoms. First, they blew up one or two buildings at a time. Finding that of no avail, they took half a block. That was no use. Then they took a block, but in spite of them all, the fire kept on spreading. As the fires gained momentum and the city's water system being destroyed, survivors gathered wherever they could find water. All through the night, victims huddled together in in the open air as flames lit the night sky. One observer found refuge in one such plaza, and he said, The fire was going on in the the district south of them, and at intervals all night, exhausted firefighters made their way to the plaza, and they just dropped with the breath out of them, among them huddled people and the bundles of household goods. The soldiers who were administering affairs with all the justice of judges and all the devotion of heroes kept three or four buckets of water, even from the women for these men who kept coming all night. There was little food also kept by the soldiers for these emergencies, and the sergeant had in his charge one precious bottle of whiskey from which he doled out drinks to those who were utterly exhausted. Over in a corner of the plaza, a band of men and women were praying, and one fanatic, driven crazy by horror, was crying out at the top of his voice, The Lord sent it! The Lord! His hysterical crying got on the nerves of the soldiers and bade fair to start a panic among the women and children, so the sergeant went over and stopped it by force. Whoa. All night they huddled together in this hell with the fire making it bright as day on all sides. And in the morning, the soldiers, using their senses again, commandeered a supply of bread from a bakery and sent out another water squad and and fed the refugees with a semblance of breakfast. Yikes. The quake awoke G.A. Raymond as he slept in his room at the Palace Hotel. And I think this is the one with the shattering glass. He describes his escape. I had $600 in gold under my pillow. I awoke as I was thrown out of bed. Attempting to walk, the floor shook so that I fell. I grabbed my clothing and rushed into the office where dozens were already congregated. Suddenly, the lights went out and everyone rushed for the door. Outside, I witnessed a sight I never want to see again. It was dawn and light. 
I looked up. The air was filled with falling stones. People around me were crushed to death on all sides. All around, the huge buildings were shaking and waving. Every moment, there were reports like a hundred cannons going off at one time. Then streams of fire would shoot out, and other reports followed. I asked a man standing next to me what happened. Before he could answer, a thousand bricks fell on him, and he was killed. A woman threw her arms around my neck. I pushed her away and fled. All around me, buildings were rocking and flames shooting. As I ran, people on all sides were crying, praying, calling for help. I thought the end of the world had come. I met a Catholic priest and he said, we must get to the ferry. He knew the way and we rushed down Market Street. Men, women, children crawling out from the debris. Hundreds were rushing down the street and every minute people were felled by debris. At places, the streets had cracked and opened. Chasms extended in all directions. I saw a drove of cattle, wild with fright, rushing up Market Street. I crouched behind a swaying building. As they came nearer, they disappeared, seeming to drop out into the earth. When the last had gone, I went nearer and found they had indeed been precipitated into the earth, a wide fissure having swallowed them. I was crazy with fear and the horrible sights. How I reached the ferry, I cannot say. It was bedlam, pandemonium, and hell all rolled into one. There must have been 10,000 people trying to get on that boat. Men and women fought like wildcats to push their way aboard. Clothes were torn from the backs of men and women and children indiscriminately. Women fainted, and there was no water at hand with which to revive them. Men lost their reason at those awful moments. One big, strong man beat his head against one of the iron pillars on the dock and cried out in a loud voice, This fire must be put out! The city must be saved! It was awful. At 7 a.m., United States Army troops from Fort Mason reported to the Hall of Justice and San Francisco Mayor E.E. E. Schmitz called out for the enforcement of a dusk-to-dawn curfew and authorized soldiers to shoot to kill anyone found looting. Meanwhile, in the face of significant aftershocks, firefighters and U.S. troops fought desperately to control the ongoing fire and was mentioned in a previous quote, often dynamiting the whole, whole city blocks to create firewalls. On April 20th, several thousands of refugees were trapped by the massive fire and were evacuated from the foot of Van Ness Avenue. The Army would eventually house 20,000 refugees in more than 20 military-style tent camps across the city. The fires burned out of control, and not only because of the larger area that was damaged, but because of the extensive damage to the city's water system. Now, to accurately portray how much damage there was to the city's water system, we're going to read an account by Herman Schusler, who was the chief engineer of the Spring Valley Water Company on April 24, 1906. Now, this is a little lengthy, but it provides a first-hand account that describes the damage of water, the water system and how it contributed to fighting the fires. The Spring Valley Company has three main pipelines coming into San Francisco. The first of these, from the Pilarcitos Reservoir, is a 30-inch pipeline supplying the Upper Western Edition. Except for the northerly end, this line is apparently utterly destroyed. We have been over the line and have found that the mountains are literally torn to pieces and the line's gone beyond repair. 
We have, however, a supply of 6 million gallons a day from Lake Merced, which we have started into the Pilarcitos pipes at a point north of the worst damaged section of that line. This goes to the upper western addition and will afford temporary relief. It will also enable us to determine where the worst breaks in the mains are, a thing which could not be told until we had pressure in the mains. The second of our three main pipelines is a 44, a 37, and a 30-inch line from the San Andreas Reservoir. This line was badly broken by the earthquake, but it has been repaired. We have now 6 million gallons a day from there and have succeeded in filling the College Hill Reservoir to a depth of 13 feet. This means that we have 10 million gallons stored there to be used in case of another fire. College Hill Reservoir is 250 feet above tide and controls the district west of Valencia and north of Market as far as the Burnt District and as far as the Lake Honda or Western Addition District. That we have been able to store 10 million gallons in the College Hill Reservoir is due to the help which the people have rendered us in being careful with the water. They must continue to be exceedingly careful. That is our plea, our warning. The third of our main pipes is the Crystal Springs line, which is a 44-inch line. I have just returned from another inspection of this line, and I find that out of 17 miles, which it covers, about one mile is badly broken. This will take some weeks to repair. The Crystal Springs line supplies the business districts east of Valencia, south of Market, east of Kearney, and the North Beach district as far as the Presidio. In the city, there are several high places, hills and ridges, such as Pacific Heights, Russian Hill, Presidio Heights, Clarendon Heights, formerly known as Ashbury Heights, the cemetery regions, and the most westerly and highest parts of the mission. Before the earthquake, these heights were supplied by the Black Point Pumping Station and the 17th Street Pumping Station, which drew water from the Crystal Springs and pumped it up. Both pumping stations are intact, but as the Crystal Springs system is badly broken in hundreds, perhaps thousands of places, all of which will take a long time and a great deal of work to repair, we are working to introduce an emergency supply line by laying 24-inch pipe on Valencia Street on top of the street between 19th and 18th Streets. The street on that block sank and was torn frightfully, and the pipes sank and were torn apart with it. When this splice is made on Valencia Street, we will try to drive the water down the entire length of Valencia Street and our 22-inch main pipe to Market Street, along Market to Sansom, along Sansom to Montgomery Avenue, along Montgomery Avenue to Bay Street, and along Bay to the Francisco Street Reservoir and the Black Point Pumping Station. From there, the water can be pumped to Presidio Heights and other high places throughout the district. Where the Valencia Street 22-inch pipe crosses 17th Street, water would be driven also through the 20-inch pipe on 17th Street to the 17th Street pumping station. That's a tongue twister. And it really is. Near No Street, where it would be pumped to Clarendon Heights tanks at an elevation of 600 feet above tide. As there is no doubt that the earthquake has broken or cracked the main 22-inch pipe along Market, Sansome and Bay Streets and Montgomery Avenue, we are bending every effort to get that splice of pipe at 17th and Valencia Streets. We need this most of all because we cannot tell where the cracks are in our main line until we get the pressure. We shall shut off the side gates of the main artery and we request that people report immediately any breaks or cracks which they may discover. The water will be turned on in a day or so if we are not prevented by any breaks as yet undiscovered. 
The only way of getting water up to the high places is by the means I've pointed out. We are asking everybody to lend us help because that's the only way anything can be accomplished. Report leaks and breaks with an exact location. We've established an office at Webster and Herman Streets where those reports can be made. That would probably be done on a website right now. Yeah, that was a lot, but it really, I mean, it kind of, if you, if you want to grab maybe a map of San Francisco and maybe go back through and listen to that again, it would probably be helpful Yeah, to know where they're talking about. To me, it's amazing. People are smart. Yeah. They they had to figure this out and they knew how to do it. I couldn't science my way through that. Yeah. No way. So what was learned and what was done after the earthquake and the fire? And what about the golden or magic fire hydrant? Ooh. Arch- yeah, you never heard of that, did you? I never did. Yeah. Archives of Firefighters report published by the Museum of the City of San Francisco show how engine companies scoured the city for water to quell the dozens of blazes that ignited for several days after the quake. Time after time, firefighters found hydrants unusable or with barely enough pressure to produce a stream. Cisterns throughout the city meant to provide an extra emergency water supply were also not spared by the earthquake, as many were already decades old and had not been properly maintained. Still, firefighters did what they could, getting whatever they could from leaking cisterns, trying each and every hydrant and pumping seawater in their efforts to control the growing problem that they were having. As flames spread into the Mission District, firefighters desperately searched for a water source but found that every hydrant in the area was inoperable. As the story is retold in a 2010 article in the San Francisco Examiner, one of the many residents who had fled up to what is now Dolores Park discovered the magic hydrant at the corner of Church and 20th Streets. Firefighters rushed to get their engines to the one working hydrant, but their horses were too exhausted to climb up the hill to reach it. So several residents helped the firefighters hook ropes onto the engines and pull them up to the corner where the hydrant stood as the sole lifeline against the growing blaze. Incredible. Incredible. And, and you know, again, it's the public is doing so much to help. Um, you know, the fire, was it the fire chief, the fire marshal was, you know, mentioning in his statement that, we couldn't do this if it wasn't for the public. You all are helping us so much. And, and, you know, we saw the same thing here during the tornadoes. Oh, absolutely. Contemporaneous reports from the fire officers at the scene recount the effort from there. By connecting with several engines, a line was extended from 20th and Church Street to Mission Street, and a strong stream was obtained, wrote Captain James Radford of Engine Company 25. Another line was led from a cistern on 19th Street near Shotwell Street, And with the aid of these two streams, the fire was extinguished at this point on April 20th at about 6 a.m. This company was on duty for 55 hours. Captain Arthur Welch of Engine Number 7 reported, In connection with Engine Number 27 and 19, we had sufficient hose to fight the fire down the north side of 20th Street to Mission Street, where the fire was extinguished on the morning of April 20th. Due to the fact that we were able to obtain a supply of water, we were able to stop the fire from crossing 20th Street and destroying the complete Mission District. According to the Guardians of the City, a historical branch of the San Francisco Fire Department, Police Department, Sheriff's Office, and EMS Agency, the firefight was also aided by volunteers with buckets and wet sacks. 
On the morning of the second day after the great earthquake, although much of the city was in ruins, the mission district was saved through the tireless work of firefighters and the miracle hydrant that came to be known as the little giant of San Francisco. The catastrophic failure of the city's water supply system in the wake of the disaster actually spurred leaders to study why the failure had occurred and implement solutions that would ensure that the city was protected in the event of another major earthquake. San Francisco City and county officials wrote in the municipal record in 1925 of the efforts taken to build a new reliable water system. A study conducted on fault lines in the region found that any pipe system would cross over those lines, risking breakage of water mains during any future earthquake. It was also found that the city's 54 cisterns built as far back as 1860 were in disrepair and lacking reinforcement to withstand the force of a quake. These results led engineers and officials to determine that a new auxiliary water system completely independent from the rest of the city's water supply would be needed to ensure firefighting readiness should should all else fail in any future disaster. Although he was killed before these decisions were made, Chief Sullivan can be credited for much of the changes made to improve the water supply. Guardians of the City trustee David Eberly told Fire Rescue No. 1. He had been advocating for a secondary or what became known as an auxiliary water supply system prior to the quake, said Eberly, who was also the lead EMS agency specialist of special projects at the San Francisco Department of Public Health. As with many government projects, it was not pursued until after the Great Quake. Too little too late. Reports show that even on his deathbed, Sullivan was calling for further safeguards against extreme fires. After recovering consciousness, the chief took great interest in the affairs of the city, always being apprehensive that a fire would break out, read the article in the Los Angeles Herald announcing the chief's death on April 22, 1906. He knew from the first that he would die from his injuries, but never forgot the interests of his department. His mind seemed to dwell on the need by the city of a saltwater firefighting plant, and he repeatedly spoke to his friends of the increasing necessity for such an adjunct to the fire department of the city. As it would come to be, saltwater pumping stations would become a part of the auxiliary water supply system, a $6 million project approved by San Francisco voters in 1908. Adjusted for inflation, that amount would equal more than $174 million today. The auxiliary water supply system consists of multiple fail-safes to ensure water is available to firefighters even if the rest of the city's water system fails. The high-pressure system includes a reservoir and two tanks elevated high above the city to allow water delivery by gravity, according to SFFD. These elevated water sources can hold more than 10 million gallons of fresh water and are regularly serviced and maintained by the San Francisco Bureau of Engineering and Water Supply. High-pressure pipelines in the city are also divided into three zones and incorporate gate valves at frequent intervals to allow a damaged section of pipe to be isolated from the rest of the system. This ensures the rest of the system remains functioning even if only one section breaks. The city's underground cistern system was improved and expanded after the Great Earthquake and now consists of more than 170 cisterns, holding a total of 11 million gallons of water. The cisterns are completely separate from the rest of the city's water supply and from the rest of the high-pressure system, offering additional backup even if another component of the water system is damaged. So they have backups to their backups, which is nice. Well, it's smart. Yeah. Yeah. I I hope Los Angeles does that too. (laughs) Yeah. 
Let's mention here, San Francisco also applied to the United States Department of the Interior to gain water rights to Hetch Hetchy in Yosemite. And in 1908, President Theodore Roosevelt's Secretary of the Interior, James R. Garfield, granted San Francisco the rights to development of the Tuolumne River. This provoked a seven-year environmental struggle with the environmental group Sierra Club, led by John Muir. Yeah, the, the controversy was they wanted to dam up the river, which Muir and the Sierra Club said that would ruin the natural beauty of the park. Yes. Eventually, they won out in... And um, uh, Yosemite... San Francisco ran out, won out, yeah. Well, and Yosemite had kind of special uh, special place in John Muir's heart um, because Yosemite was, in a sense, the f- it wasn't technically the first national park, but it was the first protected environmental area um, that was signed by Abraham Lincoln. And so John Muir and President Roosevelt both had just a real soft spot for this area. And so they really did not want to mess with Yosemite at all. Yeah. The newly built cisterns were reinforced to better withstand the force of an earthquake. And when the 6.9 magnitude Loma Prieta earthquake struck in 1989, only one of the cisterns leaked while the rest remained undamaged, according to Atlas Obscura. The cisterns are regularly inspected by the San Francisco Fire Department and kept full by the Bureau of Engineering and Water Supply. The auxiliary systems win an additional $102.4 million construction project beginning in 2013, which strengthened the reservoir tanks, saltwater pumping stations against the seismic activity that could be expected Repaired systems and additional cisterns made repairs to more than 135 miles of pipelines and tunnels running underneath the city. Now, 115 years after a lone hydrant aided the historic battles against a massive blaze, 1,889 high-pressure hydrants stand at the ready to prevent another fiery nightmare. In the decades since the Great Earthquake, as new cisterns and hydrants were constructed across the city, the Miracle Hydrant continued to sit at the corner of 20th and Church, receiving very little attention for many years. According to the San Francisco Examiner, it wasn't until the late 1960s that a local dentist and historian named Doc Bullock decided to highlight the little giant by painting it gold. This gilding of the hydrant sparked a tradition that has carried on for decades, most recently on the 115th anniversary of the quake in 2021. Every year on April 18th, fire department members and relatives of earthquake survivors gather in the early morning hours, first stopping at Lotus Fountain, another landmark that survived the quake. After a commemoration ceremony at the fountain, a procession then makes its way toward Dolores Park, where the Miracle Hydrant is painted gold at 5.12 a.m., the exact time the Great Earthquake struck San Francisco. This yearly tradition earned the hydrant its second name of the Golden Hydrant, which shines as an example of firefighters and San Franciscans' resiliency and a reminder of the lessons learned and changes made to improve preparedness. The human tragedy and disaster in this story is incredible. There are not many words that can describe the suffering and damage to the people in the city, although the accounts that we were able to find, well, we, Steve, was able to find, I think do an excellent job of really illustrating just how horrific and traumatic it was. Yeah. You know, another thing that sticks out to me and we mentioned this before, after talking about the water system, is how complicated and complex the water system was even back then and 
today. Oh, really? Today? Seriously, I doubt that the everyday citizen ever gives the water system a second thought. No, you turn on the tap, the water comes out. And the water comes out. As a result of all this, building codes and fire codes have been changed. Engineers have the hindsight of being able to look back and do in-depth studies to improve our safety. Unfortunately, sometimes it takes a monumental event that could not have been foreseen by people so it can be studied and we can learn and make improvements for the future. Can it happen again? Yes. Yeah. What other natural disasters are in our future? I mean, hurricanes, fires, tornadoes, tsunamis, floods, droughts, or even blizzards. Yeah, and what about non-natural disasters like terrorist attacks? Um, Even, uh, what is it, EMP, electromagnetic pulse attacks that can really take out an entire city. Um, You know, nothing will work. Yeah, I mean, we're never really... Prepared no, till it happens. War, accidental disasters like a bridge collapse, other stru- you know, where's Mothman when you need him? Other yeah. structural failures. Like there's so much that can I don't want everybody to like live in panic mode. Yeah, but you know, even things that because of this, things that may get out of hand, yeah. They're not because yeah. we're prepared for it or some smart person somewhere has thought about this I and wonder they, how there's tr- system to take care of it. I wonder how true it is. I heard once that um, different departments like the FBI and the CIA and even the uh, maybe the Corps of Engineers or, you know, city engineers or whatever, consult with Hollywood screenwriters and directors and ask them to come up with the most like outlandish, crazy things that would ever happen in a movie so that we can prepare in case those happen in real life. The army used to have a contest to design a tank. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I, I don't know if that's true. I mean, I'm sure that is, but I, uh, as far as like different organizations, yeah, would I've, consult I've heard that with too. Hollywood, which is it's kind of cool, but it's also kind of, like kind wag, of scary. Kind of like wag the dog. Yeah, it's a little it's a little scary. I mean, there's people out there that are coming up with terrorist attacks, but getting paid. By the government to do it, essentially. Anyway, I mean, there's a lot of creativity. Enough with my tinfoil hats, yeah. yeah. So, so there you go. The San Francisco earthquake of 1906 and its aftermath. It, uh, which really, the earthquake was not. I mean, the earthquake was, was really horrific too. But that fire was really, yeah, was a lot. Yeah. Well, it was the earthquake that caused, caused all the, the pipe fire. damage sure, yeah. and started. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, just incredible stories about people and. Absolutely. The, the effort that went in to save. And you know, there are, there are thousands and thousands of other heroic stories oh, yeah, of people who saved people. nobody's ever going to know. That were, were never documented. Oh, yeah. 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 All right. Well, I guess that wraps up this week. The, the San Francisco earthquake of 1906. Yep. We got some more. Um, and, you know, we, we mentioned last week that we wanted to get this out uh, this week in particular because this past Monday was... Um, April 18th. So it was the anniversary. And so yep. we wanted to honor the San Francisco Fire Department. And uh, it was the 115th anniversary. No, 116th. Yeah. 116th anniversary. And so we wanted to pay tribute to them. So. Well, Kim, what's going on in your TikTok? Uh, or like or like our local lady, weather lady said, the TikTok. The TikTok. Yeah. So the TikTok last week, we, uh, you know, with Earth, Earth Day, um, I talked a little bit about Earth Week. Uh, so there's a little bit of different stuff. Um, spoiler alert, if you're going to be listening next week, we're going to be talking about some crazy laws uh, on the books across the country and why they're on the books. Like what 
I, you've all heard of these crazy laws, but yeah. we're we're going to talk about some of that. And enough. how did they get there? <laughs> yeah, enough of that. Yeah. So. So that's what's coming up on the tick the ticky talk. Yeah. So if someone wanted to write to us, how would they do it? Well, you can find us on all the social medias, uh, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, um, an hour of your life. And if you want to just drop us an email, you can write to us at a lost hour at gmail.com. And don't forget our webpage at anhouroofyourlife.com, which yeah. isn't much to look at, but I again, I just wanted to reserve the URL. It's a work in progress. Yeah, one day I'll, I'll get around to working on that. Well, one day you can get around to teaching me how to work on it, and I will upload photos and all kinds of fun stuff. I will do that tonight. Oh, cool. Okay, so anhouroofyourlife.com. So, from our studio in Sugar Creek Township. Thanks for spending an hour of your life with us. Sources this week include the San Francisco Museum, Fire Rescue One, History.com, Eyewitness to History, the Los Angeles Almanac, 2013Dollars.com, USGS, and the Guardians of the City.